Today's scripture reading is 1 Kings, chapters 19, verse 9 through 18. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his head and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there... Anoint Haziel, king over Aram. Also, anoint Jehu, son of Nimshai, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Maholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Haziel, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. Check. Hey, good morning. Everybody good? Okay. We're obviously not doing Matthew today. Obviously. Um, and uh, if, you're, if you're new here, my name is Tommy. I'm the pastor here. However, I'm not teaching today. We're doing something different today. Um, I've been um, guest lecturing here and there um, for Professor Aaron Ross. And he is going to come and guest lecture here for you guys today. Um, He's an he's a assistant professor of theology at Southeastern University, and, um, and uh, we've been talking, and he's got some stuff he wants to talk about, and I was like, I think this would be a good week to do it, and so he's here today, smart guy, a lot smarter than I am, a lot higher education than I have, and, uh, and I'm ready to learn, and so I hope you are, and so doc, uh, doctor, doctor, soon, right? Uh, professor Aaron Ross, come on up, and uh, give him a warm welcome. I, I also don't think I'm smarter than Tommy. I'm pretty sure he's smarter than me, which is why I love coming here, because I get to learn every week. Um, yeah, so uh, I'm happy to be here. Um, I've been coming to Watermark for uh, a few months now. I, I had some friends when I was in college that were like, oh, you need to go check out Watermark. And I was like, okay, great. It's in Tampa. That's a drive. Um, since I live in Lakeland, and I, one day I just said, you know what, I'm going to do it, I'm going to come out here, and I fell in love with it. So I love being here. Um, if you guys can, can help me out, um, because I don't preach in churches very often, I mean, I do probably like a handful of times throughout the year, I'll get invited to preach places, and I'll, and I'll go. Um, but I'm not the most comfortable in the context of a church where I can't see anybody, like you guys are all just kind of not there. Um, I'm more comfortable sitting down, talking with students, uh, having them tell me that I'm a terrible person uh, and have bad ideas. 
Um, so if you can help me out, um, the best thing that I can do is if I can have a few of you, um, especially those in the back, although if you're really bold and you're sitting up front, if you can fall asleep, um, that'd be great. It'd make me feel really comfortable. Um, if a few of you can like sit there on your phone the entire time, great. Uh, I'll feel right at home. Uh, and then that, that kind of devoted few who lean forward and look, you know, they stroke and they're just like, yeah, um, that's great too. Um, and that'll, that'll help me out. Um, but to, I, I love hearing about Matthew, and I've, and I've really enjoyed it. And then I got really scared when Tommy was like, hey, do you want to come speak? And I was like, yeah. And then I was like, but I don't want to talk about Matthew because you do it better than I ever would. Um, uh, and I, uh, Tommy and I were just joking. Job security for Tommy. <laughs> I'm, I'm terrible at Matthew. Um, but uh, I decided to kind of take like a real big detour and kind of go back quite a few hundred years um, and talk about Elijah. And Elijah's a really, really fun character because Elijah is one of these guys who we don't know much about. In fact, when you first learn about him in 1 Kings 17, he just kind of like appears and it's just kind of like, hey, here's Elijah. And he's from this, this, this city, Tishba. And no one knows where that city is. Um, no one's ever found any record of it. He's just kind of like surprised, and he just kind of comes up. So we don't even really know where he's from. And his name is really interesting because his name could possibly not even be his real name. Elijah just means um, my God is Yahweh. And so some, some scholars actually think that this is a name given to him because of how much he pronounced as Yahweh in a time in which no one else was pronouncing Yahweh. And so some people just call him Elijah as my God is Yahweh, and they see him this way. But Elijah has a really interesting story, and sometimes we miss what really happens, especially in the passage that we're going to be going over today. We miss some real deep intricacies of this kind of conversation and dialogue between Elijah and God. And I think some of these things are really important for us today in a time period in which um, we're going through things similar to what Elijah's going through. A lot of times we can feel isolated and alone the way that we feel uh, connected to God or the way that we feel like we're kind of working with God. And so this is a great passage to kind of deal with. And so uh, to talk a little bit about who Elijah was, because I like to go through this, you know, when I teach my, my students how to um, understand the Bible and read through it, I'm always like, well, you know, you need to know the characters. Um, they never believe me, so I'm going to have them listen to the podcast. We, do, we actually do this. Um, so Elijah's story is really interesting. And, and as we come through Kings, we see a couple different things that happen. He uh, steps on the scene, and he's, he's known as a prophet. And prophets are really enigmatic people in the Old Testament because oftentimes we get this picture of prophets um, that they're just there to tell the future, that they're going to kind of like sit in a dark room with like crystal balls and tell us something about what's going to happen two years from now. And, um, and sometimes there is that happening in the Old Testament. Sometimes we have prophets who do kind of give us this foreshadowing of what's going to come in the future. We get a foretaste of um, the Messiah in Isaiah. We get a couple of different passages that talk about what the Messiah is going to look like, what the Messiah is going to do. But for the most part, prophets aren't there to tell the future. For the most part, prophets are actually there. Uh, they're sent by God as people to say something is wrong here and we need to fix it. And this is what Elijah's doing. He's actually coming onto the scene during the time of two of a king and his wife, Ahab and Jezebel, who are known as some of the most evil kings in the northern kingdom of Israel. And he comes onto the scene and he's actually trying to proclaim Yahweh in a time when most people had turned to another kind of tribal god called Baal. 
And so the first thing he does, he kind of gets on the scene and goes, uh, there's not going to be rain for three years. It's really, uh, <laughs> he's really a kind of downer guy. Like, hey guys, no rain, sorry. Um, first thing he says to anybody. And then um, he, we go through these stories. He actually goes and he spends some time in Sidon, which is not in Israel. And he actually takes care of um, a lady and her son in Sidon. He, he has to leave Israel. Like Israel's doing so bad, he's, he's sent somewhere else. God takes care of him in a ravine, sends him food by birds. He goes and hangs out with this lady at Sidon. They, uh, he has this like, experience where there's all, enough bread and oil, the entire drought the lady's son dies, and she's all like, why would God kill my son? Um, Elijah prays for the son. The son, the son comes back to life. Uh, we have the next story. The one that a lot of people know about Elijah is this like, story where they're on the mountaintop. He's kind of confronting the, the, the prophets of Baal and confronting the priests of Baal. And we get this story that they have this kind of like um, medieval kind of like battle between the two, like, hey, you pray for, for Baal, and, and he'll burn up your sacrifice, and I'm going to pray to God, and he'll burn up my sacrifice, and whoever uh, wins, whichever dad's the best is going to win, right? Boof, fire. Um, and so uh, we see this, and then after the story is where we actually pick up this story. So after he actually goes through, and this kind of crazy thing happens, God kind of accepts the sacrifice of Elijah. Um, they put all the, the prophets and the priests of Baal to death, Elijah then gets real freaked out because Jezebel, the queen at the time, says, in, in 24 hours, Elijah's dead. Like, I'm going to kill him within the day. Someone, she sends out everyone, go find this guy and kill him within the day. And so we pick up the story in Elijah where Elijah is actually, um, hey, that works. Great. I had no idea how that worked. Tommy was like, you just swipe right. Clearly. Um, so we pick up the story where Ahab is actually on the run, and um, we also have this kind of moment where he's going to have this dialogue with God. So he's on the run, and he's going down to this place count, uh, called Mount Horeb, which is in Sinai, and we're going to pick up. It's a very interesting place that he's going to. Um, but the first thing that happens is it says this. It says, and behold, the word of Yahweh came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing? And this is a very interesting phrase because this first part in Hebrew, and behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, is a prophetic, um, a prophetic phrase. It's as, if, it's as if Elijah is actually ready to hear something that he needs to pronounce to the people. This is how he would have recognized this phrase. And behold, the word of Yahweh came to him. But then all of a sudden it changes, and we get kind of this like dialogue between them. And, and now he's out... Um, he responds with something very interesting. He, can, he says this. He says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he's like, hey, I'm doing everything you ask, right? Like, you keep asking me to do things, and I keep doing it. And so in so many ways, Elijah's doing these things where, he, where he's self-proclaiming. He goes, look, what I'm doing here is that I'm actually following you. This is what I'm doing. But then he goes further and beyond just saying, hey, how great, kind of like how great I am, like look at me, God, I'm doing it, I promise. He does the next step, which I think is something that oftentimes we'll do too. Uh, he says this, he says, the Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. And in reality, what he's doing is he's condemning others. 
He says, look how good I am, God, and look how bad all of they, uh, how all of them are. I'm, I'm doing so good, they're all doing terrible. And then, and then he kind of gets uh, a bit angry, but a bit sad, and he says, I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. So he, he goes to this moment of self-proclamation, he condemns others, and then he has a moment of self-pity. Like, God, look at this. Here I am. I'm doing it, no one else is doing it, and now they want to kill me. And this is everything that you've told me to do. I'm following after you. And so he gets to this place, and this place is called Mount Horeb. Uh, and it's a real fun mountain. Um, real fun, right? <laughs> look, look at all the things there to do. Um, and, and this is actually the same place that Moses goes with the people of Israel after they leave Egypt. They get to... Mount Horeb, and this is where they hear from God. So Elijah is actually kind of going back to the very place that the kind of the people of Israel first learn about the law. They first learn about uh, this is where they actually get the Ten Commandments, um, the story of the Ten Commandments and the people kind of failing and having to have new Ten Commandments made. This all happens on this mountain, and so this is where Elijah is going to. He's kind of, in his own way, he's doing two things. Elijah is running away from from Jezebel. He's scared for his life. But then he's also running away to go back to the very place the people of Israel were kind of first almost consummated by God to say, you're my people. And so he's going here because he's ready to hear from God. He wants to hear from God in this moment that he's having all this hard uh, hardship. He wants to hear from God here. So this is actually where... God speaks to him and asks him that question. Um, but I want to show you some kind of parallels because this story, as the Hebrew people, as the Israelites, as they would have read it, they would have recognized this story does not make sense unless you know the story of Moses. You have to know both stories kind of interplaying at the same time to get a sense of what's happening here. And so I want to kind of show you some of this interplay. So if you ever want to kind of like look this up, I would say go read Exodus 19. Because this is the same place that's happening in both passages, Exodus 19 and Kings. But here's, here's what happens in Exodus. So Moses is with the people, and the people um, are just fresh out of Egypt. They're trying to find out what they're doing. Um, the, Moses, the people of Israel, as they will become to be known, uh, are complaining a lot. You brought us out of Egypt. Now we're going to die. Um, we want food. We want water. I mean, if you saw that picture again, it looks like lots of water there, right? Um, and, and the word comes and the word comes to Moses and the Lord says to Moses this in verse 9 of Exodus 19 I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you so he, he actually tells the Israelites I'm going to come in this dense cloud and, and we're going to have a conversation I'm going to tell you exactly what to do but what's interesting is that in, in 1 Kings 19, it says this, the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. So they both have this sense, you being this mountain, I'm going to show up. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to be there with you, and we're going to talk, and we're going to have something to say. And Moses expects this in a weird way, because God actually, we find this in verse 16, it says this, on the morning of the third day, so he had to, he had to prep the Israelites, He's like, this is going to be kind of crazy. This is going to be tough. Like, no one come near the mountain. If you come too close to the mountain, you're going to die. Um, seems like lots of death all the time, right? You're going to die. 
uh, and so we get to verse 16, and it says, On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. So we actually get thunder and lightning, and this is actually what the people of Israel would have understood to be God's voice. Because this is actually how the tribal gods worked in the day. In fact, this is how Baal is said to have spoken to his priests and his prophets is through thunder and lightning. Kind of the, the old picture of, uh, anyone like the movie Hercules, like the, the Disney one, right? Uh, that's the only movie Hercules I know about, actually. Um, I had to clarify, though. Uh, Zeus, right? In, in mythology, Zeus is this guy with the lightning bolts, and he's ready to throw lightning bolts at people. But this is actually how they understood tribal gods in the time. Baal would speak to them through lightning and thunder. Yet, this is actually what God was going to, is happening with God. So the people of Israel are very... Uh, understanding and recognizing what's about to happen because they're understanding who God is in this moment through the thunder and lightning. But the interesting thing that happens with Elijah is Elijah's expecting this of God and yet this happens. And it says in verse 11 for First Kings, then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And for Elijah, this would have been like a mind-blowing moment. Wait a second. When the Israelites were here the first time with Moses, this is exactly how you showed yourself. You showed yourself with the wind and the lightning and the storm. But God is saying, no, no, I'm not actually in that. You, you missed it. You came down here to hear my voice, but this is not actually what I'm going to say. So Elijah has this moment in which he's trying to recognize God the same way that he's always recognized God, or the same way that the people have recognized God, and God's saying, nope. You've got it wrong. And the parallels kind of just keep going. Uh, in verse 18, it says, The smoke billowed up from it like the, from a furnace, like, so the, from the mountain, and the whole mountain trembled violently. What happens in Kings? After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. So again, he's looking for this moment of saying, Okay, well, maybe not the storm, but maybe the earthquake. Maybe the mountain's going to shake and God's going to be there. And so God actually causes the very same thing that happened in Exodus to happen with Elijah, and yet, he says, I'm not there. This isn't me. Elijah doesn't recognize God in this moment. And um, you guys don't need to see that one at all. I'm just kidding. I don't know what happens here. I didn't realize I couldn't put things at the bottom of the screen. Uh, So verse 18 in Exodus, so if you have your Bible and you want to follow along, but verse 18 says this. It says, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke, and the Lord descended on it in fire. The people understood God to actually come onto the mountain through fire. This was a moment that God was actually there and his presence was made known. So they're understanding God's presence through these kind of natural phenomenon. And they're very loud phenomenon. All of them are kind of understood to be so loud that the Israelites are so freaked out in this moment that they kind of tell Moses like, hey, we don't want to hear from God anymore. You do it. Right? Like they're, they're terrified at what's happening. Um, but again, in 1 Kings 19, it says, After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. So God completely wrecks Elijah's whole way of understanding this experience. Elijah is expecting the same thing that the Israelites saw or that Moses understood. And God is saying, this is not where I am. But the next passage is the passage I think that's most misunderstood. Um, it, it's most misunderstood in the moment of how God actually speaks to Elijah. 
And this is where we need as people, I think, very often. But we have this kind of thing. So God is speaking to the Hebrew people, and how does he do it? As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. So for the people of, of Exodus, all of these kind of things, people of Israel, all of these things that have happened, the earthquake, the fire, the storm, the lightning, everything, God is speaking through these things. They understand God's presence. The better way to almost kind of recognize what's happening here is that they understand God's presence amidst all of this uh, natural phenomenon. But for Elijah, it says this, and after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. It's in that moment that he actually understood God, his presence in a different way. And, and Tommy talked about this in uh, a few weeks ago, it might have even been a few months ago, where he talked about this kind of idea of being in your prayer closet where you'd actually kind of cover your, your face with your cloak. And this is similar to what Elijah is doing. He actually understands God's presence in the same way that Moses did, where God told Moses, I'm going to show you my presence, but you can't see my face. We're going to cover your face. And, and Elijah understands God's presence in this moment. And so he covers his face because he recognized this is a holy moment. This is something different. This is where God is, and I've been missing him. Um, but the passage, the way that it says, uh, doesn't necessarily work out the best way. Like, the translation isn't the best in Hebrew. And this is where we kind of start to get some weird things. I mean, I've been in churches where pastors have been like, okay, your life's really busy. You need to slow down. You need to find a quiet place. Go into your closet. Hide under your bed. Do whatever you need. Right? And just listen for God's voice because God will whisper to you. Right? You have to be quiet to hear God's whisper. Um, but that's not actually what's in this passage. Now, they might be right that you need to find yourself, and we do need to, as people, quiet ourselves uh, very often to hear what God is saying to us. But that's not what's happening here. And so let me show you what the passage is kind of going through. Um, in, uh, so verse 12, it says this, After the fire came a gentle whisper. But in Hebrew, it's going to say something a little bit different. And there are three words that kind of build this moment of gentle whisper. There are three Hebrew words that we kind of phrase together. The first one is kol. And uh, for anyone listening to the podcast, or anyone who does, I'm a Greek scholar. I have Hebrew friends, at my Hebrew colleagues, and they told me, like, yeah, you're right. And I'm like, good. Uh, so if I mispronounce these, I'm sorry. Uh, Cole, uh, yeah, and if, you, and if you disagree with me, I, I meant to say this too. You can always email me. Uh, my email is Tommy Preston Phillips at Watermark. I love when people disagree with me and send me really long emails and tell me why I'm wrong. It's great, so you can send it to Tommy Phillips um, at watermarkchurchgmail.org. Um, okay, so Cole. Cole is the, the, the Hebrew word for sound, and it, and it means a kind of audible sound, yet... We get something paradoxical, and we get this word here, it's damama, and it means silence. It doesn't mean sound, it means silence. And it doesn't give this inclination that God is speaking uh, through the silence as if he's whispering. What it really is going to do is something else. Um, but then we also have this kind of adjective that gets thrown in there, daka. And daka actually means crushed, thin, or fine, and so what's happening is not that God is speaking through some kind of quiet moment. It's not as if um, Elijah has, has heard all this kind of lightning and thunder and storm and wind and earthquake and fire. And then all of a sudden he got himself into a quiet place and God was like, oh, finally, he 
you've gotten quiet, right? Because who's causing all the earthquake and the fire? It's God. He caused all of it. He could have just started off with, by, by being quiet. He could have just started off by, by having, a, uh, I mean, again, we saw the mountain. There's no one there. There's no sound there. But he has to show Elijah something. And so um, an Old Testament scholar, his name is Marvin Sweeney, he says this, Elijah hears a faint sound of silence. This is probably what it really means in Hebrew. Elijah hears a faint sound of silence. He doesn't hear a voice. He doesn't hear a whisper. He literally hears silence. And this is what he recognizes God. It's not, it's not the earthquake. It's not even an audible voice. It's not some kind of sound. He hears silence and he recognizes that God is in the silence. Because it's right after this passage that he, he hears God and he hears the silence and he recognizes the silence as being the presence of God that he wraps his face up, that he hides his face because he recognizes I'm now in the presence of God. And, and I think this is an important kind of moment that Elijah is recognizing because he's already seen fire come down from uh, heaven and, and take up his sacrifice the chapter before. He's already seen God kind of... Uh, control nature by causing a drought for three years. And then whenever he tells Elijah that there's going to be rain, rain comes three years later. Uh, he's already seen God do all this, but he's never recognized God in silence. And he stops and he hears the sound of silence and he goes, this is God. God is here in this silence. Um, but then Elijah kind of <laughs> does something weird and, and I think sometimes our writers, sometimes we come to the Bible and we don't recognize that the writers often tell us that uh, our, our prophets and the people that we read about, they, they are people too and they mess up. And Elijah kind of messes up. He hears the silence. He recognizes this is God. He covers his face. He goes and he stands out uh, at the mouth of the cave. And then we get that same phrase again, that same prophetic phrase and it says, and behold, the word of Yahweh came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? So God asked him this question in this passage twice. And you would think that after some kind of profound experience, Elijah would have taken some time to go, well, clearly I answered it wrong the last time. So let me try again. At least give something different, right? Uh, well, not Elijah. He says the same exact thing, right? I've been very zealous uh, for the Lord God Almighty, he actually goes through the, the, the three things that he said before. He says, I, he self-proclaims, I've been very zealous. He condemns others. No one else is doing this. This is just me. And then he feels bad for himself and he goes, and everyone's trying to kill me. So he, he misses the profound moment of the silence. And the thing is, God responds to him and he gives a threefold response back to Elijah. He says three things in response to his thing. So when he says, I've been very zealous, uh, God says uh, in response, when you get there, telling him to go back the way he came, go back through Damascus and do a couple things. And so he says, when you get there, anoint Haziel king over uh, Aram, also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi over Israel, and anoint Elisha son of Shaphat from Abel, uh, Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. I felt really bad for our reader of scripture, like, hey, here's some names. Good luck. Um, so he says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. And then God actually kind of says to him, uh, no, no, I've got others. <laughs> You're not the only one. Go anoint these people. 
Go, go to these people who they're also, they also are zealous for me, and I'm going to use them. Right? In response to Elijah saying, the Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword, God goes, uh, no. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. God kind of goes, you're not the only one. Right? And the funny thing is, Elijah already knew he wasn't the only one. In chapter 18, he, lear- he learns about 400 other prophets that have been hidden in caves and been rescued. And yet he's still saying, I'm the only one. He still is saying, it's just me, God. I'm, I'm here. Everyone else is out to get me. It's just me. And yet God says, no, no, I've got 7,000 more. And then uh, he says, I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. And so in response, God gives this very... Uh, uplifting moment, Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Haziel, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. And now, Elisha, as far as we know, doesn't really ever kill anybody, so something's going on there. Uh, but really, God's kind of saying to Elijah, like, I've got people here, and we're going to get this done. We're going to do it. Unfortunately, as the story of Elijah goes, Elijah fails because he never actually anoints um, Haziel or Jehu uh, kings over their kingdoms. At least the story never tells us he does. Jehu is actually anointed king. Uh, you'll, you'll find his anointing happening in 2 Kings, and it's not Elijah who does it, and it's not even Elisha who does it. Elisha sends another prophet to go. Elisha's like, I can't be bothered. You go. And, and Jehu eventually gets uh, anointed but we don't, we don't have any record of Haziel being anointed. Elijah has this absolutely profound moment with God, and he misses it. And this, this profound moment comes in a way that, that Elijah is not ready to hear. It's the faint sound of silence. Understanding God in this paradoxical nature of everything is so loud, and sometimes God is just silent, and this is when God is speaking to us the loudest through him being silent. This is, and since I'm more of a theologian, I, I, I want to bring up one of my favorite dead white guys, um, St. John on the Cross. I say that because unfortunately in so much of like theology, it's all like dead white guys. Usually with big beards, he kind of he kept things clean. Good for you, John. Um, so St. John on the Cross, he's a very interesting guy. and he, he is a Spanish mystic. He's from the 16th century, uh, so quite a, quite a long time after Elijah. And he is a, he's a Catholic, and he's part of the Carmelite order. And so if you know any church history, the 16th century is kind of a crazy time period for the Catholic church. You got the Reformation going on. You have a lot of people kind of pushing back against things and moving, moving against the Catholic church. The Catholic church is moving against the Protestant movement. There's a lot of fighting, a lot of things going on. And in this moment... Uh, John on the cross has this kind of recognition of spirituality where he goes, okay, all this is like happening, but we're missing actually being with God. And, and he is what we'd call a, a mystic. He is what we call someone who cares about some uh, theological terms. Like he really pushed this idea of deification and theosis or union with Christ, getting moments where we're actually becoming one with God like actually growing in our spirituality because he sees all this kind of fighting in the church and he goes, no, no, we need to take a second to actually hear God. And unfortunately, uh, St. John of the Cross goes through a really hard moment. 
So he feels, and like Elijah, he feels very much called by God to do something. He, he feels called to reform his Carmelite order. Like, hey guys, let's remember this whole like spirituality thing. Um, but no one else wants to listen. Much like Elijah, he feels alone in this process. St. John the Cross actually gets thrown into kind of like a monk jail, which sounds terrifying. I mean, monks are already like, kind of like silent and quiet, and, you know, and then all of a sudden you get thrown into an even worse place. Um, sorry if you're a monk, by any means. Uh, I just compared your whole thing to being in jail. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, He gets thrown into jail, and once a week, literally like once, maybe even more times a week, he gets taken out of jail in front of his uh, friar brothers, and they beat him. Like, how dare you tell us anything? And they beat him publicly, so that way all the other monks can recognize, like, if you you start to follow what he's saying, like, we're going to beat you too. And he's like in solitary confinement in this in this prison, and he has this moment, much like Elijah, where he recognizes this thing, where he's called by God, he feels like he's doing what God is saying to do, he feels like everyone else is out to get him, and he kind of starts to have a little bit of pity for himself, and then he recognizes this thing, he recognizes this is the moment, he recognizes the silence, God is in this kind of silent moment. In fact, he said there's times in the Christian life and he calls it the dark night, and we often kind of follow it up with of the soul because we want to make it more poetic. Um, he has this, what he calls the dark night, which is the moment in which Christians have this time period where when we pray, we don't feel God's presence. When we worship, we don't feel joyful. When we read our Bibles, we never feel like we hear God's voice. And, and John on the Cross, in prison, as he's getting past, like, little pieces of paper through, like, his uh, very dark cell, like, he couldn't even write in his cell. It was so dark. He had to kind of, like, prop himself up to the top, like, a little slit where there was a little bit of light that would come in and he could write up there. Uh, he recognizes this moment as the moment in which God is actually there the loudest. It's actually in the moment when you don't feel like your prayers are doing anything, you don't find joy in reading the Bible, worshiping God in, in anything and taking care of the poor or the sick. It just doesn't feel good. And he goes, no, no, this is the moment. This is the moment that God is trying to speak the loudest and mature you and he's actually there just like Elijah. God's presence is actually in the sound of silence. But we're often just like both Elijah and the Israelites looking for God in the thunder and the lightning and the wind. And the, but it's actually in the moments when God's presence feels like it's farthest from us that God is doing the most in us. And so John of the Cross, he recognizes this and he writes this poem. And the whole poem is beautiful, but he, he says this uh, in one part. He goes, O night that guided me, O night more lovely than the dawn, O night that joined beloved with lover, lover transformed in the beloved. It's not the day that makes us to look more like Christ, but it's the night. It's not the moments in which we kind of feel like we got like this like mountaintop experience in a worship service that we become most like God. He calls it, it's the time when we're in the worship service and we feel nothing. We're actually being transformed more to be like God. Because this is the moment of God trusting people. Are you going to still follow me even if my presence doesn't look like the same thing you're used to? 
Are you still going to listen? Are you still going to actually be with me even if it doesn't feel like I'm with you? Because St. John the Cross recognized this thing that we as people, we love the feeling. We love feeling good. We love the emotions. We love, we even, uh, I, I don't get this, but you know, like people are like, I just want to watch a movie and have a good cry. Like, has anyone ever watched that movie or that show like This Is Us? Yeah, I haven't. Because everything I know about that show says this. Everyone who's like, oh, I'm going to go watch This Is Us because I just need to have a good cry. And I'm like, why would I want to watch that? <laughs> that sounds like a terrible night for me. Um, but we like that emotion. And St. John the Cross goes, no, no, God is stripping away the emotions because he wants us to actually understand his presence in the time where there is no emotion. Are we ready to follow God even in the midst of it not feeling like it's happening? And, and I know for me, this has happened very much so many times in my life. I never had words for it until I read St. John of the Cross, where I had moments where I, I, had, I did the same kind of threefold thing. I said, God, look, I went to, I went to Bible college. No, I went to university, and I, and I learned how to become a pastor. Uh, and I became a pastor and a youth pastor. And then halfway, like about a year into being a youth pastor, I felt like God being like, this isn't for you. And so I moved back to Lakeland. And... I had this moment of saying, God, I'm following you. It doesn't feel like anyone else around me is following you. But everyone else is getting like, everyone's in their career, getting married, having kids, like blah, blah, blah. And I'm just here working at um, (laughs) Geico. (laughs) Sorry, even like the thought of that place just brings up lots of emotions back for me. Um, It's great insurance. I use their insurance, but working there was terrible. Uh, I've had these dark nights of the soul where I felt like God was far from me, but as I look back and I read St. John on the Cross, I realized that's actually where God worked in me more than any other time. And Elijah misses this. St. John on the Cross picks it up. And it's something that um, as we're actually getting into, uh, and I want to be respectful, Tommy, tell me what time, so I'm trying to do that. As a professor, I'm like, you guys have to be here. It's on the test. Um, <laughs> Who cares if I go 10 minutes over? Um, the disciples have the same kind of dark night moment. And I love this next week. I love the Easter season because we actually get into Holy Week where we get to study and recognize the life of Jesus. But then we get to Good Friday and they had the most dark night of the soul. Because they had a moment where they actually were in the presence of Jesus. They were in the presence of the Christ. And the Christ dies, is crucified, and they literally miss they miss it. They think that Jesus is going to become the king and overthrow Rome, and they're going to be great. They're going to be like, I'm on your right side, I'm on your left side, we're the best. Like, they're having like this moment where they're thinking that Jesus is going to be an actual king, and Jesus dies, and they're all freaked out. They go back to fishing, because it's the only thing they know how to do. It brings them comfort. They don't want to have to deal with the silence or the loss of the presence of Christ, and so they just kind of go back, and they fill up the time with something else. And they miss it. They miss what, what, what Jesus is actually doing in the moment of even his death that leads to his resurrection. They don't miss it a second time because the second time after Jesus does raise from the dead and he kind of like corrects him on a bunch of things, Jesus ascends into heaven as the story kind of goes and then, then the apostles and the disciples, they go to an upper room in Jerusalem. They actually go to kind of like kind of a hiding place. They lock the door. They didn't want anyone to know they were there but they kind of enveloped the moment of losing the presence of Christ, waiting for the presence of the Spirit to come. 
they actually sit and they wait and they go, okay, I can understand this kind of moment of the loss of what I expect to be the presence of Christ because Christ is still here and I'm going to wait and I'm going to listen and I'm going to lean into the, to the moment of losing the presence of Christ. And I know for people, we need that. We need to actually be encouraged in the moment of saying, it's okay that God is silent. Are we leaning into the silence? Because God's actually in that silence. The silence isn't God withdrawing himself from us. The silence is God being there and we've, right, we've missed where God is. He is in the silence. This is where we get to wrap our faces and we get to wait and lean in and listen. And it may not sound like a voice. It didn't sound like a voice to Elijah. He just recognized that God was in that silence. St. John the Cross recognized that God was in the moment of his torture. So if the communion servers can come up, what I want to encourage, uh, encourage us today in communion um, and, and encourage us just in, in our own life that when we come to the table, the table is this moment of recognizing that when we take the body and bread of Christ, we're actually going to have the presence of Christ with us even if it doesn't feel like it. I mean, I've taken communion a lot in my life. I grew up, my dad's a pastor. We had communion all the time. Um, but I, I missed sometimes the idea that in taking communion, we actually are embodying the presence of Christ even if it doesn't feel like it. We can take the moment to recognize maybe, maybe you're going through a moment where you feel like nothing matters. Like, God, I don't hear God in prayer. The whole, like, prayers are bouncing off the ceiling type thing. I, I, my reading my Bible seems boring to me. I just can't do it. Ugh, it's so hard. Uh, worshiping, being a part of a community, coming together to actually kind of be with people. It's, I don't want to do it. Maybe you're going through that moment, but that's actually the moment that God is saying, no, no, I'm here. Are you ready to kind of envelop the actual moment of silence? To, to take it in. To be transformed by Christ in silence. And so as you come up to take communion, I, just, I want you to kind of reflect in your own life. Where has God been silent and how is God using that silence in your life? And then as you take the body and blood, think about, think about this idea in this moment of this is Christ's presence really with you, even if it doesn't feel like it even if it doesn't have some kind of like goosebumps and all the great feelings, this is actually Christ saying, I'm still with you. Jesus said in, in doing this in Luke, he goes, do this in remembrance of me. I'm still here. Do this in remembrance of me. And so take that moment and take some time and think about this. And if you want to come up and, and take communion, we'll, we'll take this together and recognize that even in the silence, we're doing this as a community. Right? So let's, let's take and let's line up and eat.